Okay? I'm going to go ahead and pray. God, our Father, Lord, we're so grateful for your love to us. God, we are grateful for all that you are to us. Indeed, you are a faithful God. Lord, you are the King of the universe. You set enthroned above the heavens. Indeed, everything is in your hand. You're in control of everything that happens. We do look to you today and thank you for your good love to us and giving us all that we need, giving us our lives, our families. Lord, everything comes from you. We praise you and we bless your holy name. We thank you, Lord, for the privilege of being able to gather here and to look into your word. We ask that you would give us revelation of your divine truth. Lord, open the eyes of our hearts and cause us to see clearly your kingdom and your purpose in our marriage. We pray, Lord, that you would grant us strength to obey you and and to glorify you in all that we say and all that we do, Lord. May our marriages be a just a picture of Christ and his church, Lord. May, may people see Christ in our marriage and in our relationship between husband and wife. We thank you, Lord, for the revelation that you give us and the teaching and instruction that you give us. And we, we desperately want to obey you, Lord. We desperately want to live in your blessing, and we want it to go well with us, Lord. So we ask for strength, Lord, to obey. We are very grateful for all that you're doing in our marriages, changing us and causing us to be like you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay. Uh, I'm sorry. I was going to make this announcement real quick. Rich and Senius is giving away a four-burner... Gas self-cleaning range for free. And there's his phone number. And he has it already pulled out and ready to go. So if anybody needs a four-burner gas range, there it is. (laughs) Okay, so we're back in our series of of, uh, Ephesians. And we have gotten through chapter 5 and verse 30. Uh, having completed this the section on um, verses 25 through 30, <clears throat> which really is about the husband's role in loving his wife, we uh, now come to uh, Ephesians 5.31 and following. And here it talks about the marriage union being one flesh. And so we're going to discuss that a bit, and looks like we'll probably wrap up our study in the text of Ephesians 5 today. And then um, next week, I hope to uh, briefly address the topic of divorce and remarriage. I told you I would do that, and uh, so uh, we'll be doing that. And then we'll be going into a series on parenting, and we'll be looking at Ephesians 6, 1 through 4. And uh, so we're going to uh, spend a couple of weeks there as well. And it won't be too much longer, and we'll probably be through the book of Ephesians and uh, moving on to some other topics. And I want to ask of you if there are any topics of great concern to you that you would like for us to address in the class here. I'm going to be doing some topical studies through through the end of the year and dealing with some controversial issues. 
and uh, maybe some some more obscure passages of Scripture that I think really need to be understood in the church. So if there are any of those that come to your mind, please see me or write it down on a note and hand it to me or something like that uh, so that I can give consideration as to whether or not we should uh, maybe do a Bible study on those things. So... Uh, Just hand me a note or see me after class or send me an email or something. So uh, with that, I'm going to go ahead and read from Ephesians 5. I'm going to start in verse 22 and read through the end of the chapter. Hear now the word of the Lord. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, and that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless." So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife even as himself, and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. Amen. Okay, so with that, we're, uh, we're into Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 31. I want to remind you of the context here of Ephesians 5, and remember that uh, verses uh, 22 through 24 really speak about the wife's submission to the husband and the husband's headship uh, in the marriage. And then from verse 25 through verse 30 is a discussion about husbands loving their wives. And you remember that twice in that section, uh, Paul repeats this principle about husbands loving their wives. And he says that they are to love their wives just as Christ also loved the church. And uh, he, he, then, he, he says that in verse 25, and he repeats it again in verse 20, I'm sorry, verse uh, 29. He says, For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church. And so twice he ha- he's repeating this concept or this idea that the husband ought to love the wife just as Christ also loves the church. And so that is the divine standard for how a husband ought to love his wife. And, of course, we've spent five weeks looking at that. We went through a five-part series of Husbands Love Your Wives. And uh, so here he's going to kind of sum up these, uh, these principles in verses 31 through 33. And then he's going to move on to a discussion about uh, ch- children, fathers, slaves, masters, so on and so forth. And then he's going to, of course, at the end of chapter 6, talk about spiritual warfare. But 
here in, in uh, these texts, he, he is uh, beginning to talk about the marriage relationship, and he's going to draw some, some principles and the analogy that the marriage relationship really is a portrait of Christ and the church, and vice versa. And uh, so, uh, starting there in verse 531, it reads this way, For this cause, a man shall leave his father and mother, and shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Now there, Paul is quoting the book of Genesis, isn't he? And he's speaking about a reality in the marriage. And he says that, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife. The idea of leave and cleave, right? And when he does that, what happens? The two shall become one flesh. And so this is where we get the idea of oneness in marriage. This is where we get the idea that the two function as one whole family unit. Of course, we, we know that the marriage relationship is, is the base relationship in any society, Right? And this is why it's so important, the, uh, the struggle for um, uh, fidelity of heterosexual marriage in our culture is so important for this very reason right here, that the two shall become one flesh. It is that God-ordained uh, order of relationships, which is the basis for every human relationship in a society. And so, um, but here, he's pointing to the fact that The two shall become one flesh. The marriage is to be an unbreakable union between husband and wife. Did you hear that? The marriage is to be an unbreakable union between husband and wife. Why is it then that we seem to think that divorce is an option? Why would we even embrace such a concept? It's socially, it's socially acceptable. Okay, because the world around us is doing it. Because you can. Because you're selfish. Because you can. Because you're selfish. Those are all good answers, Joe. Because we're sinners. Because, we're sinners. because we rebel against God, don't we? Right? But Jesus says, not so. It was not this way from the beginning, he said. Right? And then Jesus quotes this same passage in Genesis, doesn't he? And he says, A man shall leave his father and his mother and cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one. The two shall become one flesh. And uh, so we'll be talking more about that next week. Uh, We're going to look at what the Bible has to say about divorce and about remarriage which many times compounds the sin of divorce. But here he makes it very clear that um, the marriage is a oneness between the man and the wife, that they are one flesh, and this is an unbreakable union. Death alone is a cause for separation. Death alone is a cause for separation between a husband and a wife. And, of course, you realize that God is the one who holds the life and the breath of every creature in his hand. And should God so deem it acceptable that a spouse perish, then God is the author of the date of that separation, not man. 
Amen? And that's in the sovereign hands of God. And of course, Mark 10, 9 is a reference for that. Somebody want to look that up? Mark 10, 9. Husband and wife are to be united as one, not only socially, but physically, mentally, and spiritually. They are united in the purpose to love and to serve one another, to be the one who completes the other. Somebody have that reference there? Rosie, go ahead. Right, so here's God's commentary on divorce. Right? God shows up in human flesh and he speaks to us. And what does he say about divorce? What God has joined together, he says, let man not separate. So if you were wondering what God would say about divorce, there it is in the black and white. Amen? We'll talk about that more at length. Sean? Yeah. God also said when asked about it that Moses granted people a certificate of divorce because their hearts were hard. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so, where are you where are you headed with that one? It's it's a hard issue. You're asking divorce, and it's a hard issue. And mm-hmm. I think, you know, if you got your heart in the right place. Yeah. You realize that that's not an option. Right. It's it's not an option, and and so, uh, and surely you're not affirming that divorce is an option because Moses permitted it. No, no, no. You're saying the other side of that. Absolutely. Correct? And I want to affirm that. And, and we'll talk about that at, at greater length than we talk about. We'll look at those passages where Jesus says that and each of the statements that he makes and, and talk about those, those things. Um, but it is a hard issue, isn't it? It shows, it shows the reality of what's in our heart when a man and a, and a woman seek divorce, doesn't it? It's a vivid picture of what's going on inside the heart. God help us. But a man and a woman are united. They are one flesh. They're united in life together. They're united in one purpose. What is that purpose? What is the, the purpose of marriage? Glorify God. To glorify God. Amen, right? That's the purpose for everything that exists. How much more in the most basic of all human relationships? So, you know, when you consider these kinds of struggles in your marriage, you could, you could boil it right down to that one question. Does this glorify God? Right? How about that question? Should we get divorced? Well, does it glorify God? Is it consistent with the glory of God? Absolutely not. Terry? Second question is that since marriage is supposed to picture Christ in the church, is that picture what Christ would do in his church and the church would do Christ? Amen. There's a, there's another good criteria for and of course we've been using this one all through our our text here, right? Is to look at Christ in the church. Right? If a wife is struggling with submission to her husband, she should ask herself the question. Does my response to my husband look like what the church would do to Christ? And there find an answer, right? Why? Because the wife is to submit to her own husband, right? Just as the church does to Christ, Ephesians 5, 22 and 23. And that should be as to the Lord, right? And in verse 24, in everything, a wife ought to be subject to her husband. 
Amen? And so we could ask the same question in response to the way a husband is loving his wife. Am I loving my wife properly? Well, is it consistent with the way that Christ loves the church? Amen? So we have a standard. We have a plumb line. We have a a divine rule by which we can examine our behavior in our marriage to see if it glorifies God. Amen? And that is Christ and His church. Amen? Okay. We'll talk some more about that. So I was uh, pointing out there, 1 Corinthians 11, verses 8 and 9. There it says, For man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. For indeed, man was not created for the woman's sake, but the woman for the man's sake. And my point here in, in showing you this, when we're talking about the marriage union and the two becoming one flesh, and that oneness that is in marriage, consider that God created woman for man. So, so in that relationship, God had a purpose, right, to bring a completeness to the man, to fulfill the man, or to fulfill mankind, right? And then in that, woman was taken out from the side of man, right? And she was made bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh, which speaks to what? Her equality with man. You see, she came from man. She's a part of man. She was always one flesh with man. You see? That's what it's pointing to. That's what I'm, I'm, I'm uh, saying we, sh- we should see in these words. That woman came from man. Why would Paul point that out? Right? He's pointing to the oneness that we have. He's pointing to the equality that we share together in that relationship, both of us being created in the image of God. Right? No other creatures in all of the creatures in all of creation like man and woman who are both created in the image of God. Amen? And that uh, the origin of woman coming from the side of man speaks volumes about that one flesh relationship. Okay? Consider that. Consider that God had a purpose in creating woman. And here in 1 Corinthians 11, it says it was for man. It was for man. So then think about, as as a husband, how do you glorify God in your response and in your treatment of your wife, being that she is the gift of God that He created for you? And as a wife... How do you fulfill your God-given purpose of being created for your husband? Think about that. How that ought to change our thinking when we consider how we behave toward our husband or our wife. Amen? It's awful quiet in here. (laughs) Comments from Adam Clark. He says, For Adam, knowing how the woman was formed, said... This is flesh of my flesh and bone of my bone. God could have formed the woman out of the dust of the earth, as he had formed the man. But had he done so, she must have appeared in his eyes as a distinct being, to whom he had no natural relation. 
But as God formed her out of a part of the man himself, he saw she was of the same nature, the same identical flesh and blood, and of the same constitution in all respects, and consequently having equal powers, faculties, and rights. This at once ensured his affection and excited his esteem. You see, Adam saw Eve, and he saw one like me, right? Except prettier. Except prettier. <laughs> and shapelier, I might add. <laughs> right? But you see, woman and man have equality in the fact that they're, they're both the same species. Right? They're, they're both of the same constitution in every respect, and that's what the term bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh means. You see, Adam was looking around, didn't see anything else. He saw chimpanzees and monkeys and elephants and birds and reptiles and all kinds of things running around the garden, but nothing that looked quite like him. Right? Until Eve. And then he saw that Eve had come from him. And uh, <clears throat> these, are, these are profound things to consider. The importance of this truth cannot be overstated. Man and woman become one family unit, distinct, distinct from the one they were raised in. For this cause, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife. Two very important matters here. That the husband and the wife make that proper separation from the parents and family they were raised in. Many apparel enters a marriage from its in-laws. Okay? And so here, here is counsel, all right? Here is counsel. That the man and the woman are to leave that household that they were raised in and cleave to one another. Amen? How many of you know it's true? Many apparel enter a marriage from the in-laws. I see a few hands there. I see a few people speaking from experience. Right? Consider, what does God say? What does God mean when he says that a man shall leave his father and his mother? Why does he add that? Isn't that obvious, God? Yeah, it is. It is obvious. And it should be obvious when we look at our marriage. We should see that we have left our parents. And we are cleaving to our wife. And we are new, one new distinct family unit who is one in Christ. Amen? And, of course, the idea of cleaving. The idea of cleaving would mean to attach oneself to, right? To hold tightly to. Would you agree? And so we've made a separation here, and we've joined another over here, and now we're holding tightly. We're cleaving, right? And if you're a husband, you're nourishing and you're cherishing and you're loving and if you're a wife, you're joyfully supporting his love. Amen? And joyfully uh, being cleft to. <laughs> Amen? They shall leave and cleave. How about number two? That every parent should allow for that separation when they marry off a child. It is a shameful thing for the in-law parents to seek control and improper influence in their offspring's marriage. 
probably quite a few parents who need to hear that. Amen? But is it not also bound up in that command? When a father, when a, when a husband should leave his parents and cleave to his wife, right? Should not the parents allow for that leaving? Should not the parents allow for that separation? Or should they constantly seek to domineer and control the marriage of their offspring? <laughs> Isn't that also obvious? Isn't that also obvious? The two have left and they have become one distinct family unit. Right? And and the head of the wife is who? The husband, not the parents. Amen? And maybe some parents need to hear you tell them that. Husband. Maybe some parents need for you to show them that by your actions. Amen? God, God help us. There's lots of problems, isn't there, that face us in our lives. But God gives us guidance, doesn't he? His word is a light for our path and a lamp to our feet. He gives us wisdom, doesn't he? Amen? God help us to heed it and obey it. If we do, we'll live in his blessing. Amen? And if we strive against the guidance of God, we'll live in his cursing. We'll live in misery, and God will see to it. Amen? This union is furthermore a symbol of something much greater. The union of Christ with His bride, the church. To this the apostle looks and causes us to ponder in the following verse. So here's this thing to consider. You know, this for this cause a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Now look what Paul says. This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ in the church. So now he brings in this whole discussion about Christ in the church and the analogy of how marriage relates to that. And how Christ in the church, he's saying, is a great mystery about what? About one flesh. About oneness. And he's saying, he's saying here, consider how the church is one with Christ. Amen? Consider how, the, how Christ is one with his church. And he is in you, is he not? Does Christ uh, pervade your whole being? Consider that, that great mystery of Christ being one flesh with his church. Right? This Paul uses as analogy to describe the one flesh relationship in marriage. Amen? That's profound. This mystery is great. What is mystery here? Not our human relationship. We are accustomed to that. It's not a mystery, if you will, that man and woman leave and cleave and become one flesh. That's rather obvious, isn't it? We become one family unit. We become one flesh together. But what is the mystery here? The true reality to which it points, the relationship of Christ with His bride, the church. This is indeed mysterious and great. Paul makes it clear that the whole matter of the marriage union is a great mystery in how it typifies the Christ-Church relationship. 
Remember, when we were looking at the first part of Ephesians and we were talking about themes that were in the book of Ephesians, do you remember that one of those is the idea of the mystery? And that I think mystery is a word that's used six times in the book of Ephesians. Who can tell me what the mystery in Ephesians was, was about in earlier places? Anybody remember that? The church. What about the church specifically? Uh, Anybody remember? Right. That now um, that the, the the Jew and the Gentile have become what? One in Christ Jesus. Remember that? And so there's this idea of that oneness. And in chapter 2, he talks about how Christ has broken down the dividing wall of hostility, making out of the two, what? Jew and Gentile, one new family in Christ, right? Who is rising to become a holy building in the Lord, right? A place where God dwells by His Spirit. Remember that? Right? And then in chapter 3, he starts there and he says, this is a great mystery. What is that? That now the Jew and the Gentile are one in Christ. Okay? Here again, he brings up this concept of mystery, and now he's applying it to the marriage relationship. And he's talking about the same kind of oneness. Right? That in that marriage, the husband and the wife become one. You know, in light of this, can you see how divorce is such a treacherous thing? You see that? Should, should Christ ever be annulled from his bride, the church? Should there ever be separation between Christ and his bride? What a terrible thing that would be. Amen? And Paul uses it to support the idea of that unbreakable oneness that is in marriage. Amen? Listen, if thoughts of divorce ever enter your mind about your marriage, you ought to flee from those thoughts. You ought to put them to death and never allow them to live. That's the old wicked man seeking to destroy what God has joined together. Amen? Shouldn't even think about it. It's ungodly thinking. Okay? It's not an option. You shouldn't even consider it. This mystery is great. It is as Christ and His church. He says, But I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. So then, marriage is a type of Christ's relation to His people. And, you know, we use that word type, and what it means is a typical prophecy. Okay? A typical prophecy. You may have heard of the idea of types and shadows in the Old Testament. Everybody heard that idea? You kind of have a concept of what that is? Tell me a a common type in the Old Testament. Joseph? Two people saying Joseph. Tell me about it. Joseph and Christ. So Joseph and his life is a type of Christ. How is that? Somebody explain that to me. Rosie, Sophia, how is Joseph a type of Christ? (laughs) Um, Just in the example of how um, uh, 
when he was brought from nothing to to rule, mm -hmm. and how he was able to save the people, his, his family being the, the Jews. Okay, so he 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 was given a position of sovereignty, wasn't he? And it all started from from uh, from a very lowly position that he once had, right? How about rejection from family? He was called a dreamer. Okay. He saw his brothers in the tribes bowing down to him. Okay. He had revelation from God. How about this? He suffered at the hands of his brothers. Right? Suffered at the hands of his brothers. He was sold, even as Christ was sold. Right? Right? Um, I mean, you could you could you could find a whole bunch of of ideas in the typical prophecy of Joseph, but I'm I'm wanting you to get the concept of a typical prophecy. Okay, they're all through the Old Testament. In other words, the life of Joseph meant much more than just the life of Joseph. Are you with me? And when you peer into the Word of God, you get these revelations of greater spiritual truth. Okay, these are all through the Old Testament. These are in every single Old Testament Bible story. There isn't an Old Testament Bible story that is not a typical prophecy. They all are, every one of them in some respect. Okay? So, <clears throat> that'll open up your Old Testament for you. Amen? Carol? I think it's important that he forgave his brothers, even though they uh, okay. wronged him Sure. The forgiveness of Christ. Forgiveness of Joseph is a type of the forgiveness of Christ. Okay, so you got the idea of a typical prophecy, right? We call it we call it a type. All right. But consider how then and therefore that marriage is a type of Christ's relation to his people. There are many resemblances of marriage to union of Christ the living God and his bride the church. Okay? So I listed out a few of them, and, and here's uh, some things that you can see. And I got a lot of this from um, comments from um, from Adam Clark and, and uh, Albert Barnes. But uh, let's go through a few of these. The first Adam, okay? Now, Adam here being referred to as the federal head of mankind, right? The first Adam, the real man Adam, is the father of the whole human race and is an image of Christ, the last Adam, the father of the church universal, and the company of the redeemed and living body, the church, throughout the ages. So Adam, being the father of all of the people who live, is a type of Christ, okay, who is the father of all of the people who live, in the spiritual sense. And um, that Eve, his wife, who, by the way, her name literally means the mother of all the living. The mother of all the living. Eve is a type of the church, the mother of all the living, that elect company of people who shall live forevermore. Okay? In the same way that Eve is the mother of every living person that ever lived, the church is a picture of all of those who possess eternal life. Okay? There isn't a single person who will live in heaven with God who was not born into that relation through the church. Amen? Okay. The deep sleep at the formation of Eve was a type of Christ's death. 
Consider that. It's interesting. The taking of the rib from Adam's side was a type of the broken body of Christ, which produced Eve, the church, and she originated from his open side. Consider that. That it's through the broken body of Jesus on the cross that the church was born. Right? In the same way, Eve was taken from the side of Adam. Right? And even from one of his bones... Right? Did you know that one that man has one less rib bone than a woman? Did you know that? <clears throat> the church also originated from the opening of the side of Christ upon the cross. We are only a people through the broken, broken body of Christ. How about the formation of Eve from the open side of Adam and of Adam's flesh is a type of the regeneration of believers in Christ to life eternal. Her life was a picture of our life in Christ. She was bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh. So we shall be like Christ at the resurrection. Consider that Eve's life was in the side of Adam. And she was like the church is with Christ. She was in Adam. And so the church is in Christ. And again, there's the, the, the mystery of, of one flesh. The love which Adam expressed towards Eve and his union with her by marriage were lively images of Christ's love to believers and of his eternal union with them in one society after their resurrection. Consider how if God made mankind for the purpose of redemption, if he made the whole creation and then made man in his own image for the grand purpose of redemption. Think about how God created marriage as the base unit for all human relationships to be a picture of his ultimate purposes of redemption and Christ in the church. It's profound. It's like God painted a picture of redemption in giving us marriage. You see that? A lot of things to be considered there about uh, the purposes of God. How about the procreation of Adam's children is a type of evangelism in the church. Through the intimate love of Christ and his church and or sexual intimacy of Adam and Eve, offspring are produced. Indeed, all the living are alive by this one fact only, that they have become a member of the church through the union with Christ by faith in his death and atonement. And so even the procreation of children in marriage is a picture of evangelism in the church and people being born into the kingdom of God through Christ, who is the father, and the church, who is the mother of all the living. Interesting, uh, interesting things. And that's why Paul calls it a mystery. That's why Paul brings it up right in the middle of a discussion about marriage. He says it's a great mystery. Amen? And uh, this would be just a few things to consider about that. Anybody want to comment on that? Greg? I'm just saying, in light of all that, it's a, it's, it's a wonder that any marriages outside of Christ are successful at all, or last at all. You know, and and, mm-hmm. and further, 
if, if uh, you know, because typically, I think, marriage outside of Christ, probably not, not necessarily all, but I would say typically most people get married to have their needs and wants and desires <coughs> met. Mm-hmm. And marriage in Christ is a whole other world. Yes, it is. It's a whole different thing. And, and you're getting married to have your needs and desires and wants met. You're never going to be fulfilled. I like what you said there. Some people get married to have their needs and their wants and their desires met or fulfilled. And I want to affirm what you're saying. Not so in a Christian marriage. Not so in a Christian marriage. Why? Because the love that comes from God is, first of all, selfless. And when it commits itself... It commits itself to the other's blessing. So the purpose in Christian marriage should be to commit oneself to the other's benefit. That is a manifestation of true godly love. And where do we see that? We see that on the cross. We see that on the cross. And that's really what this... I mean what this whole thing is pointing mm-hmm. yes I mean I mean you can sum up everything you've said in the last six yeah. weeks to, to that uh, one moment there I, I just want to I don't want to pass by this in marriage counseling let me tell you what happens okay somebody will call up and say we're having struggles um we need, we need some help working through our issues. Okay, great. Let's, let's work through your issues. Okay, this is what happens. Somebody comes in and they say, he doesn't do this, he doesn't do that, he does this, he does that, she doesn't do this, she doesn't do that, she does this, she does that. That's, that's what happens every time. Every single time there's conflict in marriage, this is the issue. Somebody's upset that their needs, their wants, and their desires are not being met. Okay. So, yeah, right. Yeah, Daryl's saying they don't. They don't come in and sit down and say, "Oh, well, he just loves me too much. <laughs> He's too good to me." It's just creating a huge problem in our marriage. <laughs> He's too kind and affectionate and gentle and sacrificial and meek and sincere. <laughs> right? You with me? Think about marriage conflict. I mean, I want to be real honest with you and just cause you to consider. Think about conflict in your marriage. Okay? What is the root of conflict in marriage? Okay? All right. Now we're getting somewhere. Pride. Selfishness. Jerry, were you going to comment? Yeah, I see two great doctrines coming out of this whole picture. Mm-hmm. One is uh, once saved, always saved. Mm-hmm. So people who, if you were to peel it a little bit deeper, you would get to that point that 
once you're saved, you're always saved. That you can't lose your salvation because <laughs> God certainly hates divorce. The other thing is that, according to God, marriage is between a man and a woman, so it really rules out homosexual marriages. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I would affirm both of those things. Um, Carol? Wouldn't you say pride is the foundation for all conflict sin? Yes, I would. I would say that pride, I like what Spurgeon said about pride. It is the mother of hell. <laughs> Tanya? Pride is selfishness. Pride is selfishness. Yeah, very much so. What? I know, but selfishness Mm-hmm. Yeah, actually, quite frankly, there there is a godly selfishness. Okay, there is a godly selfishness, and I'm not prepared to go into all of that except to tell you that God does everything He does for His own purpose and benefit. Which is the which, by the way, is the same reason you do everything you do. You do everything you do for your own purpose and benefit. Okay. So, for instance, let's just get right to the nitty-gritty, and I'll, I'll answer all those things. And then if you want to talk more about it, you'll have to talk to me offline. But think about Christ going to the cross. Okay? Did Jesus want to go to the cross? No, of course not. What was he doing in the Gethsemane? Praying that he wouldn't have to. Right? Agonizing that he was going there, right? But hang on a minute here, folks. Did Christ want to go to the cross? Yes, he did. So you, you see there's a sense in which he doesn't want to go to the cross because it's going to be agonizing. Right? Because he's going to suffer at the hands of murderous men and be brutally beaten and murdered. Right? But Christ went to the cross. Why? Because he wanted to manifest his divine love. And that's what pleased him. Amen? Of course, in this this sense, it pleased him to obey the Father's will. The Father's will was to manifest his divine love through the Son. Right? And that's why it says in Isaiah 53 that it pleased God to crush Christ. You with me? And so, listen, God does everything he does for the purpose of his own benefit. And I, I want to show you how you do that same thing. If you love your wife or if you love your husband, you do it because that's what gives you joy. Even if it's motivated in godliness like it should be, right? A, a husband or a wife loving each other from godly motivations is, is actually fulfilling a selfish purpose. You with me? I don't mean to confuse you here, but except for you to understand this concept that there is there is a right kind of selfishness. It is a selfishness which is consistent with the nature of God. You with me? Is that dangerous ground? Well, it's the same thing with jealousy, right? And yes. God is jealous. His name is jealous. Amen. And it's kind of a hard hunt. Amen. But then, if you look at it, God is jealous because we are His people. Amen. He doesn't want us to 
have us go outside Amen. and find another God. That's right. And, and and that's a perfect example. Right? God's name is jealous. Yet jealousy is listed as one of the works of the flesh in Ephesians five nineteen. Right? So there there's kind of an example for you. There there is a sense in which certain things have specific meanings, and that's what we're talking about here with self interest. But we're kind of getting off chasing rabbits here. So consider what Greg was saying there about how all of this in marriage, uh, he, he's saying what, what happens in a marriage that's not Christ-centered, right? Well, then you have the Do, self, you have the selfishness skewed, mm-hmm. where you're you're just looking after your own needs and interests mm-hmm. when ultimately if you're doing it in a godly way you're actually getting your needs and everything met mm-hmm. but it's so skewed and, and perverted mm-hmm. that it's kind of every man for himself kind of thing amen and I mean it, the, the place that, that marriage has reached in the American culture today is horrifying it's absolutely horrifying the young people don't even want to get married because they look at the examples of marriage that have gone before them for the last several generations, and they're they're just they're absolutely uh, um, have disdain for the whole idea, the whole concept. They don't want to commit. Amen. It's tragic. It's tragic. Not only is it tragic, it's sinful. It's going to bring judgment on our nation. The child, the the nation that your children and your children's children is growing up in, is going to be subject to the judgment of God for what is taking place in marriage. Make no mistake about it. A breakdown there is equal to a breakdown of the entire culture and the entire society. It's tough stuff. God help us. God have mercy on our children, American children in the future. Amen. Okay, <clears throat> so then, uh, consider that also the church in Scripture is called the Bride of Christ. She's called the Bride of Christ. The church is over and over called the Bride of Christ in the Scriptures. She is forever joined to Christ, as Jerry was telling us, and the two shall become one forever and ever, world without end. This indeed is a profound mystery, that... There is Jesus, the Christ, and he has taken for himself a bride who is a company of redeemed people whom he has chosen for himself, who shall spend eternity with him in that place which he has prepared for her. Amen? It's a profound mystery. Who could ever think of such a thing? Revelation 19.7 says, Let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to Him. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. And it was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. And here the concept of the marriage of the Lamb and His bride. Amen? At the return of Christ. This is portrayed again and again in Scripture. I gave you a whole bunch of references there on the handout. The church in Scripture is referred to as the Bride of Christ. This is indeed a profound mystery. And then also, that the church is a type of marriage. So consider this. Not only is marriage a type of Christ in the church, but the church is a type of marriage. 
Here's what I mean by that. Conversely, shall we look at marriage symbolized by Christ and His church? A truly Christian marriage has an excellence, holiness, and unity in it that cannot be easily described. But it should be full of joy and purity of the Lord and His people. Husbands should view their wives through the eyes of Christ, loving and nurturing and cherishing and protecting them. He should serve her in love, gently giving his leadership and always seeking her purity in everything. And wives should view their husbands through the eyes of the church, respecting and serving him in love. Our marriage should, to large degree, typify this marvelous relation. Okay? And there again, the same principle we've kind of been using all along. Uh, Even as Christ has loved his church, a husband is to love his wife. And even as the church submits to Christ and is subject to Christ, so also wives should be subject to their own husbands. Okay? When you think about your marriage, especially if you're having conflict, okay, sit down and think real hard about how your marriage is reflecting Christ and his relationship to the church. And then consider your own motivations in whatever role you're in. Okay? You know, if you're a husband and you're, and you're, you're complaining about the way your wife is, right? Why don't you stop for a moment and consider the way that Christ views his church. And that even though she has sinned against him a thousand times, he's going to go to the cross to redeem her. That's what it means when it says husbands love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. Amen? So where is your complaining then, husband? About how she doesn't meet your needs. Or you don't like the way she cooks your toast. That's the problem, cooking toast. <laughs> <laughs> toast. Toast does get in the way of things, I understand. But if we're going to purify our hearts, right then we're going to take on the attitude of Christ in spite of burnt toast. Amen? Of course, husbands never burn toast, do they? (laughs) Okay. Scott. God tried to show us this with Hosea, Mm -hmm. how much he loved Israel. No matter what they did, Mm -hmm. he always went and got them back. Amen. Hosea took took a prostitute for a wife. She went back into prostitution, and he went back and redeemed her. Amen. Absolutely. Consider that. Consider that portrait of Christ loving his church when you think you got a bad husband. Right? It's amazing. It's amazing. Amazing love. How can it be? Amen. Boy, there's a lot a lot for us to learn, isn't there, in God's examples of love? It's huge. Okay, then. Uh, looking at this last verse here. Nevertheless, let each individual among you also love his own wife, even as himself, and let the wife see to it that she respect her husband. Okay, in this one verse, Paul sums up the whole little passage on marriage. He just kind of sums it right up. He says, here it is. This is it. Takes two to tango. And here's how the two tango, right? 
<clears throat> let each individual among you also love his own wife even as himself, and let the wife see to it that she respect her husband. The scripture sums up the passage before. It identifies the basic roles of both husband and wife. The husband is to give himself in sacrificial love to his wife to the level that he cares for himself and the degree that Christ does his church. And she is to respect her husband as to the Lord and in everything. The unity of marriage is a beautiful and profound mystery, which in its original design should bring great fulfillment and blessings to its participants. You know, if you've experienced much godly virtue in your marriage, you know what it means that it brings great blessing. There are profound blessings that I have experienced in my marriage that there's almost no words to describe how fulfilling they are to me. Uh, I would hope that you could say the same thing about your marriage. And if you can't, I want you to know you have a lot more that you can find. A lot more fulfillment that you can find in Christ. If you'll seek to obey God and do His will. He won't disappoint you. Ask and ye shall receive. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened. Amen? You having marriage problems? Cry out to God. Is He not an all-sufficient resource? Can God fix a marriage problem? Well, Maxine and I are here today as a testimony to the fact that God can fix a broken marriage. And there are several others of you here in the same shoes. And I'm here to tell you firsthand, God can fix marriage problems and He can turn your marriage into something you never dreamed it could be. Joe? Amen. Yeah, I mean, here's the whole thing. Here's this whole worldly idea and thought of marriage. Here it is, right here. Greg was telling us about it. Right? If if we go into marriage expecting all of these things out of it, right? We we got off on the wrong foot. Why? Our motivations are wrong. We didn't make a commitment to love selflessly. What did we do? We made a commitment to get, right? And Greg also said, we're never going to be fulfilled. With that kind of motivation, we're never going to be fulfilled. Because let me tell you where fulfillment comes from. Fulfillment comes from selflessly loving as Christ loves. That's what fills the soul. Amen? Terry? Great, but you know, what do women want? <laughs> mm-hmm. And 
it really kind of misses the the whole point of what you've been trying to teach. This is what Christ says we need. This is what Christ says we um, should be doing. And what we want is really kind of needless. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know? Yeah. Well, I wasn't referring to those things as wants. I was referring to those things as needs. Right. And I can tell you, if those uh, needs that women have don't get met, the marriage is going to suffer drastically. And uh, this is this is what happens. So I'm not sure exactly what well, you're referring I'm to. Saying, I'm just saying, you know, we as a people tend to think of, well, what you're get what. What you taught us out of the word is different than what, um, you know, practically speaking, what, what, what we want or what we need. Mm-hmm. And it's not different. I mean, if you really look at it, it's not. We tend to think of things as um, what pleases us, mm-hmm. not looking at what God says we need, mm-hmm. you know? Yes, so, we do. We tend, so, and we do that selfishly, right? Right, mm-hmm. right. And so we're having to kind of change our mindset. Yes, we are. Into what a godly affection is. Amen. Into what a worldly affection. Is. Amen. And and uh, is that not uh, uh, consider what happens in a marriage when both parties are motivated to love each other selflessly? Then you'll understand what harmony in a marriage should look like, right? Somebody right over here, um, Sammy. Well, I could see the point of your confusion because well, last week we were talking about you know what do you need, what do you need, we're listing up needs, and, mm-hmm. and now we're talking about you know well your fulfillment is right here. Don't be selfish and everything. But I think we're kind of on two different tracks because last week we were talking about the commandment in Ephesians that the man will fulfill your need. That's my job is to fulfill her needs, and so. You know, you're looking at it from a woman's standpoint. Well, I shouldn't be selfish. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, as a man, mm-hmm. I've got to figure out what her needs are and, yeah. and zero in on them. Well, let me try to uh, let me try to help with a little bit of that confusion. Okay, if I could take all the men and go get them in a room and sit them down and say, "Here's here's what you ought to do according to the scripture," that was the last five weeks. Okay. And I'm sitting, I'm, I'm, I'm looking at this passage and I'm seeing what God is saying to the man of how to behave. Remember, this is Ephesians 4 through 6. And in Ephesians 4 through 6, we have what? Practical instruction about how to live the Christian life. What specific things to do and not to do, right? And here in this passage, God is telling husbands what to do and how to do it. And he's given us great insight about that, Right? Today, we're kind of talking about the motivations of the heart, all right? We're not so much talking about, if you will, specific uh, things to do and not to do. But let me tell you, we're all humans and we all have needs. And the wife has some very specific needs, which we discussed last week, because we were talking to husbands, and we were looking at (laughs) verses 28 through 30. And uh, they're talking about... Uh, how the Bible is saying that a husband needs to nourish and cherish his wife. And so we were looking at very practical examples of how Christ nourishes and cherishes his church. But at the same time, consider how you're going to, as a husband, you're going to fall short of that. Right? 
And and what's going to be there to help in that time of need? Well, hopefully it's the wife's selfless love to the husband, where she's going to realize that, you know, he's not Christ and he's not meeting every single one of my needs. So at some point I need to be able to uh, absorb some of that failing love, right? And do my best to love and serve him and, and respect that, right? And uh, it just, you know, um, I hope that that helps with that confusion. I, frankly, I, I don't think we're, we're really confused about it, are we? Is anybody really confused about this? Because if so, I, I want to address it further. Well, the, what I'm trying to say is this is exactly what we need, is mm-hmm. what is what you is what the Word is showing us, mm-hmm. to be nourished, mm-hmm. and to, you know, to have a godly affection for your wife. And then wives, you know, I feel like, you know, people are saying, well, you've been beating up the husband. Well, mm-hmm. let me tell you, it's been beating me up because, you know, look, this is what love is. Mm-hmm. And it, and so it's, it's kind of like, well, if, if our husbands aren't doing this for us, should we be thinking about, well, are we doing this for our husband? Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's not like just the husbands do this. Yeah. And the wives also have the responsibility of saying, husband, you are are loving me. Husband, you are are my king. Mm-hmm. You know, husband, you are. Um, she does. You know. She does. I'm trying to get there, Carlos. <laughs> <laughs> God allowed it this way. That way we can rely on God because I cannot fulfill Rosie's every need. The things you were talking about, it's not going to happen this side of eternity. It's not going to happen. Mm-hmm. And I know me and Rosie have gone to a few uh, marriage things and one of, the wor- one of the words they use is unrealistic expectations. So we come in like they heard your mindset or culture but all we can do is in our hearts cry out to God look at the Bible pray and he'll show us in my case maybe one little verse and then you just ask her this is what God showed me mm-hmm. please can you work on this mm-hmm. because this side of heaven I, I, I can't do it Mm-hmm. And God, so the next thing is, she says, yes, I'll go to God. I'll go to God. And then you just say, okay, I just hope it works out now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I, you know, I, I, tend to, I tend to have a different viewpoint on that. And, and that is that Christ is the standard. And I don't look at Christ and say, I can't do that. In my mind, we look at Christ and we say, I'm going to strive with all of God's strength that is within me to to be like him. That is the whole goal of Christian life. And so, uh, obviously, we realize that we're not Christ, and there are going to be times when our love fails. But my, my point is our focus, our drive, our perspective, what is it? Is it to say that uh, Jesus is, is saying, be perfect even as your heavenly Father is perfect? And so I look at that and I say, but it's never going to happen. Right? Yeah. 
But it's still the commandment of God. It's the commandment of God for us to pursue. I agree. It's something to strive for. Yes, it is. But I've heard some uh, somebody say, well, when my husband is like Christ, then I'll be that perfect submission. Mm-hmm. Sure, so that's a wicked thought. It's never going to happen. So that's a wicked thought. That that wasn't a godly motivated thought, right? And it wasn't consistent with the scripture. But at the same time, when a when a husband considers how he fails and how he might fail his wife, what he ought to do is go to God in humble repentance and say, "Father, strengthen me that I might do Your will, and that I might love my wife like You have called me to love her." And here's the thing: regardless of whether or not it's going to happen, Christ has commanded us to do it. As a matter of fact, twice in this passage of Scripture, he says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church. And we we don't have any other practice in the church except for husbands to strive to love their wives with the kind of love that Christ has manifested for his church. Scott. I don't think God created marriage to fulfill our needs. I think he gave us needs to lead us to marriage. And he gave us marriage because it was the only way we would understand what our relationship should be with him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, surely in, in, in all of it, right? God is working his grand design and his grand purpose. And, you know, it's the, you, you could take, chase that whole argument back to, you know, why is there sin in the creation, you know? Because God is using it to manifest his purposes, right? He, he, if, if God didn't want sin to ever be in the creation, he would have never made a law for man to transgress. Right? But he did. Why? Because he has very real purpose in all of those things coming to pass. And so it is in marriage, right? Uh, God is using all of those things to work together for the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purpose, and to ultimately manifest his glory. Right? We're running out of time here. So I'm going to go ahead and just end and, and pray. God, our Father, we do thank you for your love to us. We thank you for your rich word. I pray, God, if there be any confusion in our understanding, that you would help us to see clearly your truth, Lord. I pray, Father, that you would uh, uh, come to our aid and and, uh, bring light to our eyes and show us, Lord, how us husbands can love our wives. And, Father, help us, our our wives, to to, uh, joyfully uh, support their husband's leadership and to uh, just uh, be that uh, godly example of a godly wife. I pray, Lord, that you would purify our hearts, both husbands and wives, so that we have a true godly love one for the other. And, Lord, I pray that you'd bring it to pass, even in the the works of our marriage. Lord, may the husbands truly love their wives. And, God, may may the wives truly be subject to their husbands in everything. And may we enjoy that tremendous blessing and privilege that is ours as we enjoy this marriage together, Lord. I pray that every marriage here represented would be a God-centered marriage and that your love would truly live in our hearts. We thank you for your love to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.